0: You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. All right, so we've been going through Revelation, and it's always a little difficult to kind of catch everyone up to speed simply because this thing is constantly evolving as it goes along. And there may be one week where, like, you're super overwhelmed with God's love, and then you get to the next week, and it seems like there's a lot of judgment going on. So if you happen to catch it on one week and not the other week, you're already off balance as to what's going on in Revelation. So some of the themes that I would just overall hit on is, one, People understand Revelation wrong constantly. While Left Behind, I read as a kid, was a fun kind of sci-fi adventure. It's honestly missing most of the point of what's really going on in Revelation. Uh, And then, um, two, there's a lot of different ways to understand this book. And that's partially because God didn't want us to understand it in fully. He wants us to get a big glimpse of it. But non-fullness, and that's how prophecy of of end-time stuff has always worked in the Bible. For example, like Jesus dying on a cross makes sense to us because we're after the fact, right? We read everything in the Old Testament knowing Jesus has died on a cross. We read it, we're like, oh, I see how Jesus fulfilled that. But the people of Jesus' time didn't expect him to fulfill it in that way because it's intentionally vague. Prophecy about future stuff is intentionally vague. Because you don't just write out your battle plans. Especially when Satan's a part of the battle plan. So, that sounds a little weird. Let me explain really quick. (laughs) Right? Um, Satan was supposed to get Jesus nailed on the cross. Now, if it's prophesied that Jesus is going to die on a cross straight, direct, guess who's not going to nail him on a cross? Satan. Right? Because then he's participated in a part of the salvation plan. Instead... Satan gets Jesus nailed on a cross. It says he enters into Judas, sets things up. Now he looks back. He's like, oh, I didn't understand what all those prophetic words meant. So same thing with Revelation. It is intentionally vague because we're supposed to understand what's coming. We're supposed to understand a lot of it. But it's not just like everything written out plainly because you're supposed to understand a lot of it in hindsight. So after Revelation has come to pass... One day we'll look back and be like, ah, I see what you really meant by that passage. Okay, So we do come across things throughout Revelation that are intentionally vague because that's the way God works. Enough to show you what's coming, but not enough to nail down every detail. And the thing that is coming, though, is love. It's justice. It's goodness. It's all things put right. It's Eden reinstated. It's things fixed. We're not just like good humans now, but we're new humans now with new resurrected bodies as God's presence and heaven and his kingdom don't stay up in the skies in heaven, but they come down to earth where we're given new bodies to live in this new kingdom he set up. That is the book of Revelation. It's telling us this what it's going to be like when God puts all things right. And that's a positive message and a good message for the Christians to hear, especially at their time, because they're being killed left and right. They're being told all these uh, messages from John. He's like, look, you guys are going to suffer. Bad things are coming. I know that's hard to hear, but I want to tell you the fuller story of what God's going to do. He gave me this revelation that it doesn't end with this bad stuff. There is more coming. Things are going to get better. Hang in there. And today, uh, we hear that message loud and clear in Revelation 8, 1 through 5. Uh, over the last few weeks, we saw six seals opened, not just like, you know, like, seal, not like an animal, but like, a <laughs> or a Pokemon, I guess is what I was doing. Um, but a, a seal on like, a, you, you open the seal so you can open a letter, Okay. So there's these seven seals on this letter that Jesus, pictured as a lamb, is opening. He's opened six of them. The seventh one's the last one. People are getting ready to freak out, okay? So here's like verse 8 and 1. It says, when the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And just imagine that. Like, that's the intensity of this. Imagine a movie doing that. You go to see a movie, and halfway through the movie... After all this action of six seals has happened, suddenly the movie just goes dead silent for 30 minutes while you sit there in anticipation of what's going to happen. God sometimes shows up like that. I remember um, I was helping with worship at an event in college, and we finished this song, and instead of going to the next one, it just went dead silent, and no one could come out of it. Everyone was just dead silent, just like in reverence of God. And it was one of the most intimate worship moments I've had where there was like no music at all. That's the scene right here. Everyone's just like dead silent. The last seal has been open. What's going to happen? And then I saw seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. The seventh seal has been opened. The full end is coming where God is getting ready to put things right. And all bad stuff is about to crumble away. And as we look at this picture, we might find ourselves confused. So I want to explain a few things because this is meant to be symbolic. I don't know if you've ever had a spiritual dream from God, but it's interesting. When God gives you a dream, it's not just like, hey, you're going to go to school today and this is going to happen, so be careful. I mean, he could do that. Maybe he does do that. Uh, But usually it's like colors and objects that are meant to represent something. You see that in the Bible, Joseph Joseph. Joseph interprets dreams not of literal things that are are like exactly laid out how it's going to happen. No, it's seven fat cows eating seven ugly cows. And he's like, ah, famine, (laughs) right? He's representing the themes. So there's themes here too in this vision because John's having this vision. So in this vision, what he sees, and he said this already in Revelation 5, is that there are these Christians who have been murdered or martyred, as we use. When you die for Jesus, you become a martyr. And all of these Christians who have died for Jesus are inside of this heavenly altar. Now, we know what altars are for. That's where sacrifices go. In the Old Testament, you made a sacrifice, you put the animal on the altar, and you gave it over to God. In God's heavenly uh, uh, temple, in this picture... It's not animals. It's all these Christians who have given their life over for the cause. God, we're dying, but you're worth it. We lay ourselves down on the altar. I think it's as Paul says, right? Be a living sacrifice. Except they're not alive anymore. They've passed. They've already made the full sacrifice. So here they are, and they're in the altar. And in Revelation 5, they say, God, when are you going to avenge our blood? (laughs) This wasn't right that we died. When, when are you going to do something about it? And that right there is a question that we still ask today in a lot of different forms. Right? We look at things that are wrong with the world and we say, God, when are you going to do something about it? Why do good things happen to bad people? Why do bad things happen to good people? If God's real, then why does the world look the way it is? If God loves us, then why do we suffer? If God has all the power, then why doesn't he do something? Uh, does injustice against people mean anything to God? Does, does anything even matter? These are all the kinds of questions that Christians have been asking for a long time. And it's some of the questions that tend to make people kind of atheistic sometimes is, well, if God was real, he would take care of all these things. But Revelation 8 is answering that question. God's saying, I will do something. Your prayers will be answered. But all that's going to happen in my timing. And even these martyrs who have been sacrificed on the altar of God, in Revelation 16, when they see what God has done to answer their prayers... They cry out, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. They see the judgments that they're waiting for, but they have to wait for God to bring it about. The power of prayer and the power of sacrifice are seen very tangibly in today's passage. Not only only do you have these these, uh, Christians who have been sacrificed to God, But you also have their prayers. An angel is lifting up incense to heaven. And that smoke is meant to represent their prayers. God is wafting in their prayers. He can smell their prayers. It's covering his holy temple. You can't ignore the prayers of these Christians. He's bathing in it. And their sacrifice to die for Jesus, to not say no to him, but to pursue him, that sacrifice that they make causes something very powerful to happen. This angel who's holding their prayers takes fire from the altar where they've been sacrificed and throws the fire into this bowl of prayers and then dumps out the prayers on the earth. And it's actually people's prayers being answered and their lives being given that brings about this judgment of God. He hears their prayers. He baptizes them and he pours it out on the earth. That's the like a moment all the way at the end of Revelation where God comes and brings full judgment. But we're not at that time yet. Because he longs for more to be saved. And I say that like every week, I feel like. But if you're here today and you don't follow Jesus, part of the reason God hasn't sent Jesus back yet is because he wants everyone to follow Jesus. So he's patient, he waits. And historically, if you look at any of the times where God has poured out judgment, he has waited beyond waiting. He's not an angry God. He's not someone who just sees something wrong and steps right in instantly. He waits for repentance. It's his kindness that leads people to repent. He steps in at like the last minute waiting, even for Nineveh. He waits all the way to the end. Maybe they'll repent, even as bad as they are now. Maybe they'll repent. And he holds out hope that they will. I don't think it's easy for God to wait, though. He does it because there's always hope that things can turn around. As long as there's Christians, there's always hope that we'll make a difference in this world and show people who Jesus is, increase God's family, and increase uh, the goodness that is on this planet as we image him. There's always hope so long as we're here. But just because God is patient, just because God is willing to wait does not mean that God is is not hurting with your hurting. It doesn't mean he's not suffering with your suffering, that he doesn't feel your pain. And I think you see this with Jesus. Because when Jesus comes to earth, he's God made as man. When God comes to earth, he's preaching one time in Luke and he he just states when he looks at all the injustice and the frustration of it all, and he's talking about the end times, there's one spot in, in Luke twelve forty-nine where he just says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. <laughs> in other words, in Revelation, the fire is cast on the earth. That's what we saw today. But Jesus, when he was on the earth, he's like, "Ah, oh, I how much I wish that it would have already started not because he's angry and wants to see everything burn, but because he sees all the injustice, he sees all the pain, he sees all the oppression, and, and, and perhaps in this moment of emotion, Jesus just kind of bursts out oh, that it would have already started. That would have already done away with all the pain and suffering and oppression and, and made everything right. Oh, that this fire, we're already here. But... That's not the case because God is just that patient. So when you're in the midst of it, maybe you can think of those words from Jesus. When you're in the midst of all this struggle, all this strife, everything feels like it's fighting against you. Maybe you can think of Jesus who in his own way was like, ah, if only the judgment were ready to, to end all this bad stuff in the world. But in the same moment, see a Jesus who says, but... I lay down my life for this world anyways and I love them and I care for them and I hope that even those who are sinning against me, even those who are murdering me, putting me on a cross, even that they will turn to me. God cares about what you're going through. God cares about those who are dying on his behalf even today, especially in other countries where it's happening much more regularly. When we look at that, we're like, oh, just nothing came of that. They're just dead now. It's over. Actually, God pours out a blessing on those who have been martyred for him in Revelation. It's something that people who read Revelation, they fight about it all the time. It's a very strange passage. It's the only place in the Bible where it's mentioned. But there's something called a first resurrection. Maybe you've heard of this. It's got a lot of different views as to how it works. But in Revelation, I think it's 20. Uh, It says that God brings his kingdom to the earth, but the only people who get resurrected at that point are just the martyrs. (laughs) That apparently these who had a shortened lifespan because they gave their life for Jesus get a slightly extended eternal lifespan, (laughs) maybe of some sort. I don't really know how it works. Maybe there's another way to interpret it. But it seems like there are these people who have laid down their life for Jesus are going to start reigning with him in this new kingdom that he sets up earlier than the rest of us who had the easy Christian life. God cares about those and what they're going through. And you see the eternal reward. Not your best life now, as some popular books like to talk about, but your best life later, at the end, preparing for that time. I remember uh, when I went to Monroe once to see a, a Heidi Baker from Mozambique preach. Uh, she's just, man, she's put her life on the line time and time again. And when I went to see her preach, she just said something that's stuck with me since that day. She just, right into the mic, just, man, I've decided the only way to go is to be killed for Jesus. <laughs> and she's already had her life threatened and Quite honestly, there's a good chance she will be killed for Jesus in the end. But to look in her eyes as she's talking to all these people and see that she's dead serious, that to her it would be a blessing to make an impact on the earth, that by the time that she dies, the reason she dies is because she's been killed on Jesus' behalf. That was frightening and made me question my own faith. Would I put all that on the line? Do I care about Jesus enough that if my life was threatened, I'd be willing to say the same thing? Or do I like the casual, easy Christianity that America sometimes offers me? And there's a question that I had to sit with in that moment and had to spend quite a few weeks digesting. I thought she was crazy at the time. But honestly, when you look at Revelation... <laughs> You're like, this is actually a pretty good blessing to go down that way. So uh, there's not many of us here tonight. I know that. Um, but this, this passage calls us to remind ourselves to, to put our, our lives on the line for Jesus. In other words, be a living sacrifice. Put everything for him to count even our own lives as nothing in comparison to, to the glory of who he is. But then it also us, uh, it encourages us to continue praying, that God hears our prayers, smells our prayers in this particular image, and that our prayers are answered, and that God will, will hear our prayers about injustice and about wrongdoing, and he'll motivate us to fight, and the angels will fight, and he will uh, give us the help that we need. So one of the things that I just wanted to pass around, you know, last year we did a prayer meetings every Wednesday morning for um, for a good year, straight through. Uh, early Wednesday morning prayer meetings. Uh, we haven't been doing that this year so far. We're on a break. One of the ways I would like to kind of baptize our area in prayer and, and make sure that God is, is hearing us and it's tangible enough to smell is just to... Um, Pass around this list. And what you're going to have on it is Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And there's a time slot from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. You don't have to pray for a whole hour, but just choose one or two or three or one slot every day at the same time. Whatever you want to do, choose a slot in here somewhere and just commit to say, during the time that I signed up, I'm going to put on my calendar, I'm going to set an alarm. That at that time every week, I'm just going to stop and pray. And that may be for like 60 seconds. Totally fine. For some of you, maybe half an hour to the whole hour. You can do what you want. But I want to ensure that we are not just uh, making social difference as a church, but that we are pursuing the throne of God and ensuring that we are praying. You know, there's a verse, and I wrote it at the bottom here, in Ezekiel twenty-two thirty, 30, there was uh, some judgment God was going to bring at one point. And he said in that verse, I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me in the land that I should not destroy it. But I found none. In other words, when God was going to bring judgment in Ezekiel's time, he's like, I just looked for someone to pray, <laughs> someone to tell me no. And I couldn't find anyone. No one was talking to me. Nobody cared to defend themselves. It just invited judgment. You may be surprised just how much God cares about your voice and your opinion and your thoughts. Just read Exodus. Man, Moses. Time and time again, Moses is like, oh God, please don't do that. Let's find another way. (laughs) And the weirdest thing. God's like, okay. <laughs> he changes his mind based on prayers, based on intercession. So I'm just gonna hand it down here. Casey's actually gotta come up and play music. But as we're just worshiping to a few songs, if you want to pass it around, choose a few slots just to sign up for. Again, you're you're not gonna have to pray for that whole hour. You're just claiming during that hour, every uh Day or week of this year, I'm just going to stop, pause and pray during that time for our community, uh, that people would see Jesus, that they would be saved, that uh, God would break down strongholds and begin to change our community. Uh, And we'll we'll keep that list around, too, uh, so people can keep signing up uh, through future weeks when they're present. So we're going to set up to play some music as we turn our hearts towards prayer right now.